Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Let's pray together. Father, we draw into your presence now by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, which is his body, that shed blood, the body of Jesus, by the atoning work of Christ, we are able to pray and to call you Abba Father. And so we ask now, Lord, that you by your spirit would be with us and make this time fruitful and beneficial. Lord Jesus, you said you are the vine and we are the branches and apart from you, we can do nothing. So be with me, give me special power through the spirit to say only those things that will be helpful and beneficial for building up your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it's a joy to be with you, uh, a privilege uh, to be invited to come and speak, uh, to give these Adams lectures. I'm a preacher, so I, I had to ask and clarify, are they lectures or sermons? So it's kind of halfway in between. But I am delighted to be able to share God's word with you. I'm delighted just to be alive. 2020 was an amazing year for me, and on Father's Day, I was preaching on heaven and literally having a heart attack while preaching. It was an amazing experience. I said to my wife later, that would have been a great way to go. Um, she didn't think so. Um, but, uh, you know, God preserved me through that time. And uh, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, said, I preached as a, as a dying man to dying men and as someone who would never preach again. And there's an urgency to that. There's an urgency to our time. Our time is short. We don't have limitless time. And for us as preachers of the word, we need to realize time is short for our hearers. And the central work of God is the salvation of souls. And that's what preaching is all about, that we would be instruments in the hands of God for the salvation of souls. One of the formative influences in my life has been John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory of the Christian life. And just the image, the vision, of the Christian life being a pilgrimage, a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city is so helpful, especially in evangelicalism. We have this idea of an instantaneous once saved, always saved thing, and they're not really sure what comes after that. It's not a helpful vision of salvation. Salvation is a process, a journey, and Bunyan understood that. And and along the way, it's an allegory, uh, the central figure, uh, an individual named Christian, Um, comes to the interpreter's house, and in the allegory, the interpreter probably represents a pastor, but he shows uh, Christian many vignettes in his house that will be helpful for his pilgrimage. My favorite is the fire burning against the wall, and I'll just read what Bunyan wrote. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where was a fire burning against a wall and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, Thou shalt see also the reason of that. So he had him around to the backside of the wall, where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of the which he did also continually cast, but secretly 
into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, that is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Now, friends, this is a vital understanding of our salvation. It is like a fire, a supernatural fire burning in our hearts, a fire that the Holy Spirit kindled. It's a fire of faith in Jesus Christ. But that fire is vulnerable to Satan's attacks. He is constantly seeking to extinguish the fire of grace by temptations and accusations. Temptations, accusations all the time. But Christ is secretly at work in our hearts with the oil of his grace, a secret supply because he's pouring it in by some hidden pipeline into our hearts. This is a picture, I think, of the continual priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. And priests of old did two great works for their people. They offered sacrifice for sinners, and they prayed for sinners. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavenly realms and is continually ministering on our behalf. And as our great high priest, he has already offered the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins once for all by his own blood. Hebrews 9.12, it says that Christ entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And then he continues at all times to intercede for us on the basis of that finished work. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost or to save continually or completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So you can picture Christ, our great high priest, at the right hand of God interceding continually for us. Well, what does he pray for? And I think Luke 22 gives us a very powerful image of what he prays for. Luke 22, this is the night before Jesus was crucified. He's dealing with his disciples, getting them ready for this, and he deals especially with Simon Peter. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So that links together with Hebrews 7.25. Christ is at the right hand of God and is interceding for his people who are in this world, assaulted by the world of flesh and the devil, that their faith will not fail. He continually prays for that. And because he intercedes for them, their faith will not fail. Peter's faith didn't fail. When he turned back and repented, he was able to strengthen his brothers through his ministry. But we have to understand this continual intercessory ministry. 
We should not think somehow that Satan has given up and is no longer pouring water on the work of grace in our hearts. It's not because Satan is weak or lacks skill or is not interested in you or because you are somehow out of danger. No to all of those. While we live, our souls are assaulted, continually assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Peter tells us that lusts wage war against our souls. Satan is a a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. But we know that the fire of grace will never fail because the triune God will not let it fail. Christ is interceding for us to Almighty God. And he is the omnipotent king of the universe. And he is pleading the, the merits of his shed blood. And he's asking that our faith will not fail under the constant onslaught of Satan. And because the son always pleases his father, and because he always prays according to the will of his father, we know that the father will give him whatever he asks for. His intercessory prayer ministry for his redeemed people will most certainly succeed. The faith of none of them will fail. The redeemed will continue to believe in Jesus Christ day after day, year after year, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Though a spiritual warfare is being waged against our souls that every one of us that's here today underestimates. All of us underestimate that spiritual warfare going on right now over our souls until we are finally safe in heaven and our faith has at last become sight. That is the image of Bunyan's that has affected my pastoral ministry more than any other from Pilgrim's Progress, of a vulnerable fire of grace, of Satan pouring water on it to try to put it out, and Jesus secretly feeding oil uh, to keep it going. But now I want to go beyond Bunyan's image. I want to assert that the central way, that secret way that Christ feeds the fire of grace is by the ongoing ministry of the Word. And part of that is going to be some of you called to be faithful preachers of the word week after week in the pulpit. That you're called on, as it were, to be vessels in the hand of Christ secretly to pour oil of sustaining grace in the hearts of your hearers so that their faith will not fail. And that's the focus of my message today. Feeding faith by the ongoing ministry of the word. That's what I want to exhort you to do. The image in your mind. I'm going to preach the word so I can feed the faith of God's people. Faith needs food. It's a living thing. And what is the food of faith but the word of God? As, he, as, as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing the word, the word of Christ. And so just as faith began in our hearts by the ministry of the Word, so it is continued and nurtured by the ministry of the Word. It's the same thing. Having begun in that way, it is continued in that way. So one of the central images in my mind as I get ready to preach all the time, including this morning, but then week after week at First Baptist Church, is the encounter that Peter had after Christ's resurrection as Jesus was there to restore Peter back to ministry. And he asked him, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? John 21, 17. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then he said, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So I think about that as I'm ready to preach. Now, one of my heroes in the pulpit ministry is Charles Spurgeon. And I know I heard that week after week as he ascended the steps, 
uh, up to the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he would say to himself over and over, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. He's saying that as he goes up. I think that's a great thing to say. But mine is more, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So feed them the word of God. And this helps me. I mean, I'm never going to feel totally normal standing up in front of huge groups of people and talking. It's weird. It's strange. I'll never feel like this is like totally okay doing this. But whenever I feel nervous as I'm sitting in the pew before I go up to preach, and it's reasonable to feel somewhat nervous. It's like I realize the, the, the seriousness of the moment. It's a serious time. But I get my eyes off of myself. And it's really between Jesus and his sheep. And I'm just the intermediator. I'm, I'm a servant of, of the feeding that Jesus wants to do, of the secret work of grace he's doing in people's hearts, to pour oil into them by the ministry of the word. That's my desire, feed my sheep. Another image from uh, Spurgeon's pulpit ministry also comes from my early ministry as a pastor. Years ago, my first pastorate was a small church plant that a number of us planted near Gordon-Conwell Seminary in, in Topsfield, Massachusetts. And Zane Pratt was the first pastor of that. Mark Dever was part of that church planting effort, and I was as well. And then Zane went on the mission field, and I became the next pastor. And we met in the second floor of the Topsfield Town Hall. It was a church plant. And so there was uh, the Town Hall podium had a uh, Topsfield, Massachusetts town seal. We thought we wanted to cover that on Sundays as we use it. So this godly lady in our church uh, made a tapestry that kind of hung down and cross-stitched, uh, you know, a beautiful image on the front. Um, but it fixed, it was fixed to the pulpit by a flap that came over and it was attached with Velcro. And on this side of the flap, she had cross-stitched something from Spurgeon's pulpit, which said, step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. And I remember I would see that while I was preaching, step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. And I was the only one that could see. It was a message to me. And I think that's just vital. Step aside, sir. So what, what is that? But I want to add to that. That's me. I have a restless mind. I never stop thinking. I was added to Bunyan's image, and now I'm going to add to this thing. Step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus in the text. That they may see Jesus coming up out of the words of God. That's my job. Get out of the way of the text. And so I want to do that. So that's, that, that step aside is a strong word to us as preachers. Our ego gets in the way. We want people to think well of us. We want people to have a high esteem of us. That's what our ego is all about. And so we want to be thought of as, I don't know, eloquent, let's say. So, boy, just have a way with words. Like, like John, the preacher at Constantinople, who was so gifted with with words. After he died, they called him Golden Mouth, Chrysostom. Wouldn't you love to be called the Golden Mouth? It's like, well, that's a little weird for our age. But still, to be seen as eloquent, to be able to just pour out gold through your words. Or maybe people are tempted to, to want to be seen as, as funny, uh, you know, entertaining, tickling the ears of their hearers by by engaging stories and anecdotes and things like that, which I look on as like the funnel cakes of preaching. You know, um, just deep fried stuff covered with powdered sugar. I was at a Durham Bulls game once and I saw them going around and dispensing this stuff and there was a plastic cover on it and it was so greasy and nasty looking. 
So I asked a doctor in our church, I said, how long could you survive on funnel cakes and water? He said, it wouldn't be long. <laughs> but I, I just worry that some pastors get in the pulpit and then it's funnel cakes and water and, and it's just, it's not going to sustain the people. And then there's other pressures these days. 2020 was a very supercharged year for evangelicals. And one of the pressures on the pulpit now is to show yourself to be a certain kind of person morally, that you do virtue signaling from the pulpit when a current event happens. And you speak to that current event and show that we're not like that, we are like this. And that happens consistently with current events. Step aside, sir, step aside that they may see Jesus. That was the message to me. And I want to do that up out of the text. And I have done that. My strategy on that is something called expository preaching, where the Latin base of the English word means to, to lift up out, to put up out of the text and present it. It's coming up out of the Bible to the people. The point of the text is the point of the sermon. The subpoints of the text are the subpoints of the sermon. It's coming up out of the sermon. That's what expository preaching is. And my exhortation to you is to be expositional preachers for the faith of your hearers, both saving faith in some and then sanctifying faith in the rest, that, that you would preach for the faith of your hearers. That's my exhortation to you. Now, I've had mentors in expository preaching. Uh, John MacArthur has been the one that's been the longest. I almost right away in my Christian life started listening to Grace to You. Um, Tim Schumann, who is the guy who, who um, discipled me with Campus Crusade for Christ at MIT, uh, was a big John MacArthur fan. And so I started listening, and I was just drawn in by the sequential expositions. And so sequential exposition is not just expository preaching, but how the sermons line up with each other day after day or week after week, I guess, in that case. And so you're just coming up out of a book, and you just move through a book. And so that's what I've done. I'm, I'm in my 23rd year at First Baptist Church. That's nothing compared to MacArthur, who's in his 50th, 51st year, I guess, at Grace Community Church. And, and I'm just thinking, I don't, I don't think you can do that as a topical preacher. I don't think you have 50 years' worth of topics. But if you're just coming up out of the text week after week after week, it's just so powerful. And so MacArthur has been one of my mentors in sequential uh, exposition. And then as I continued my own education, another mentor came along, John Calvin. I'd heard about Calvin as a theologian, and I'd certainly heard of the system of theology known as Calvinism, which I embrace. Um, and, but I didn't realize what a great preacher he was. He was just one of the great preachers of church history. And he was into sequential exposition, obviously, long before John MacArthur. He preached daily in Geneva, John Calvin did. His commitment to sequential exposition is plainly seen in one very powerful anecdote. He had enemies there in Geneva that hated his pattern or program of holiness and reformation in Geneva, and they wanted him out, and they gained the upper hand politically, and he was expelled from his ministry in November of 1537 in Geneva. So he was out. When he was ejected, he was preaching through the Psalms. He was at a certain point in the Psalms. Almost four years later, September of 1541, they had begged him to come back. Things were going off the rails, and they wanted him back to lead the Reformation in Geneva. So he came back, and when he returned to the pulpit, he picked up at the exact spot he was at when he'd been expelled. Now, that's both encouragement to the church, but also a bit of a rebuke. You've missed out on almost four years of feeding from the Word of God. Now, let's pick up where we were and continue. 
That's sequential exposition. He just, the, the word of God just flowed. He was just faithful to preach. In one 13-month stretch, John Calvin preached, get this, 300, over 300 sermons from the book of Deuteronomy. Day after day after day preaching God's word. And then the third mentor that I commend to you is, is Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher. And I, I just had a sabbatical this, this fall, and I was in Cardiff, Wales, and got to know some of the, the Welsh church leaders and just the esteem that they have for Martin Lloyd-Jones. J.I. Packer, who wrote Knowing God, said that Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher he'd ever heard in his life. He said this, I'd never heard such preaching. When he first heard Lloyd-Jones preach, I'd never heard such preaching. It came to me with the force of an electric shock, bringing me more of a sense of God than any other man. He was just shocked by the word of God, and Lloyd-Jones was an expositor. He was preaching expositional sermons. Lloyd-Jones combined light with heat. The light was clear doctrine mined by sound exegesis and good theology out of the text. And then the heat was passion. There was just a power and passion to the way the man preached. So you think logic on fire, word on fire. That's what it was like to hear Lloyd-Jones preach. He used the word unction. It's an old word, but it's the idea of an anointing of the Holy Spirit, an unction, an anointing of the Holy Spirit. The preacher was to be a man saturated by the Spirit of God. And you could picture such a man with the text in his hand standing, as it were, kind of between heaven and earth, speaking for God, from God, to the people of God. And when he was preaching, there was a sense of the immediate presence of the holy God there at the Westminster Chapel in London where he preached. I've had the privilege in the Gospel Coalition of getting to know Don Carson, D.A. Carson, and he also had the experience of hearing Lloyd-Jones preach. And people were saying, you've got to hear the good doctor preach, Lloyd-Jones, when you're in England during your studies at some point. So he managed to get there. And uh, he said, he told me, he said, I'll tell you, when, when the sermon began, my initial thought as I listened to Lloyd-Jones is, this man's overrated. <laughs> He's overrated. Well, why is that? It's because Lloyd-Jones had boring intros. He, he took a while to get going. Someone said it was like a 747 lumbering down. The, it just took a while to get off the ground. I won't do my impersonation of this Welsh brother, but, you know, this, the, the text to which I should like to call your attention today is, you know, it's like, really? And every sermon began the same way. But by half an hour in to the experience, Don Carson said my opinion had changed entirely. I felt this was the greatest preacher I'd ever heard in my life. But by the end of the hour, and it was an hour message, by the end of the hour, Don Carson said, at the end of the time, I honestly wasn't thinking about Lloyd-Jones at all. I feel like I'd been lifted up from earth and I'd been transported into the heavenly realms to see the infinite majesty of Christ and of his work for me. And Lloyd-Jones just didn't matter. He disappeared. Well, that's what step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus looks like. But you can't do that except from an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Think Elijah on Mount Carmel. 
there's, there's the, the altar and there's the dead animal and the blood and there's the water and all that and then there's the failed prophets of Baal exhausted after their futile efforts and then there's the people of Israel and then there's Elijah and he's praying a simple prayer. God, pour down the fire, let the people see that I have done all of these things at your command and that you are today turning the hearts of Israel back to yourself. That's it, just simple prayer. Fire falls. You can't make that happen. That's something only God can do. We have a job to do to arrange everything, put it in place. But only God can pour out the fire from heaven to earth. And that's the desire. And what happened? The people fell down, thunderstruck, and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's the effect you're yearning for. That's the effect you're begging for as you intercede before you preach. And Lloyd-Jones spoke on the greatness of preaching. In 1969, he was asked to do a series of lectures on preaching similar to these Adams lectures, but vastly greater. And his lectures at that time have been captured in a, in a classic book, Preaching and Preachers, and I would commend it to you for your study. But he made this statement. It's very interesting, and it challenges me. The work of preaching is the highest and greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. The work of preaching is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone can be called. Well, I'm a preacher, and I feel like rebelling against that statement. Like, Lloyd-Jones, you should know as a child of the Reformation the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We're not setting up some priestly class of preachers that are at a higher level spiritually than everyone else. Lloyd-Jones knew that. He was not denigrating brothers and sisters in Christ who were not preachers and who had spiritual gifts and did vital ministries in the body of Christ, not denigrating that at all. He was not minimizing. Well, what, what does he mean then? He said the, the key is to understand the significance of what God is seeking to do in preaching. What role does it play in redemptive history? What does it mean that he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up? The ministry of the word, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, are delivery systems for the word of God. As the word of God is delivered, it primes the pump for everyone in the church of Christ to do what they're called to do. It delivers salvation to the hearers and it delivers uh, instruction and, and incentive to the servants to serve. It, it's just a significant role. So I think it's a, it, it's a valid statement, although we don't in any way want to denigrate those that are not called to preach, which is the overwhelming majority of Christians. And so picture then the spirit-anointed preacher standing, as I mentioned, somewhat between heaven and earth, ministering on God's behalf to the people. So that image comes to me from the book of Deuteronomy. The, the Puritans in their day called preaching prophesying. William Perkins used that word. I never really liked it that much because I look on prophecy as the, as the immediate delivery of a new word of God to the people of God about any topic, past, present, or future, but that's what prophecy is to me. I think that's a good, it's an immediate revelation of a new word from God. What I do is teaching preaching. But they like, and there's a reason why the Puritans called it prophesying, but their image was of, of, of Moses that would go up into the presence of God and come down with a word from God. 
And it comes from Deuteronomy 5. You remember how God had called and assembled the nation of Israel to the foot of the mountain and had told them to sanctify themselves and put a border around the bottom of the mountain and the ground shook and God descended in fire. And then God spoke to the people directly. They heard the voice of God and they heard the Ten Commandments and they were utterly terrified. And Moses went back over that in Deuteronomy 5, 24 through 29. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. And we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? So go near and listen to all that the Lord God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you and we will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. That's awesome. So a part of that is part of good, sound, spirit-anointed preaching where you go into the presence of God in your preparation and in your prayer and your exegesis and you mine out truths and you work on them and you get the message that God has for your people and then you deliver it in the power of God to the people so there is some similarity. And preaching the gospel continually to the people is instrumental in finishing their salvation. This is the central work of God in the universe. This is the end for which God created the universe, was to reveal his own glory. And it's the end for which he redeemed his children out of sin, that he might show them his glory. That's, that's what's happening. So now what I want to do with the time that's left is give you an exhortation coming right up out of text of Scripture on how you can and should preach for faith in your hearers. And I'm coming from the book of Hebrews. So look at Hebrews 11 and verse 1. So this isn't a, a straight exposition, which is what I usually do, but it's still a lecture. But I just want to, to show how you can and should preach for the faith of your hearers. And we begin at Hebrews 11.1, though I won't give just a, sound, a, you know, a careful exposition of it. There it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, God willing, I'm going to unfold the first half of that much more on Thursday, the assurance of things hoped for, where I will talk to you about preaching for hope. But today I'm going to zero in on preaching for faith. Now, this verse is the beginning of what's known as the faith chapter, or perhaps some call it the hall of faith, in which heroes of the faith are brought forth as an accumulating great cloud of witnesses that testifies to the nature of a life of faith. What faith looks like lived out, Hebrews 11. Now, the audience of the book of Hebrews are Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, Jewish professors of faith in Christ who are under, I believe, intense pressure from unbelieving Jews to turn away from Christ and go back to Christless Old Covenant Judaism. It's, it's a 
a, a dire threat that they're under of apostasy, of forsaking Christ and going back. And so right before this faith chapter in Hebrews 10, 30, 26 through 31, there's a terrifying warning, maybe one of the direst warnings in all the Bible. There the author writes, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think there's a more terrifying warning in all of Scripture than those words. This was a life or death situation. I don't just mean physical life and physical death. I mean eternal life versus eternal death. That's what was facing them. And so he says a few verses later in verses 36 through 39, this is his ex exhortation, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's just a flow right from that terrifying warning and exhortation. So you see in these words the basic doctrine of Christian justification by faith alone. The same text Paul quoted from Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. We are born again and forgiven of our sins by simple faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story. We have to run a race of faith with endurance. We have to persevere. We have to keep running so that when we have finished, we'll receive what is promised. If you turn back, like the unbelieving Jews, that generation that came to the verge of the Jordan but then because of the 10 spies and because of their fear and their faithlessness turned away from the promised land and were destroyed, their bodies scattered through the desert, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. You've got to go on. You've got to keep moving in a life of faith. And so the great danger that the author has been addressing in this book of Hebrews is apostasy. Hebrews 2.1 we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Any chance any of the people you're preaching to are in the process of drifting away from Jesus? Drifting away. The remedy? Pay more careful attention to what we have heard. So I, I believe when I preach, there are some people that are probably drifting away from Jesus. And I want to preach for their faith that they would understand their danger, and turn back to a vigorous love for Christ. 
And then in chapter 3, he uses a more intense image. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, see to it, brothers, that none of you, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. A sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. That's what he's talking about, the danger of apostasy. And then in chapter 6, that so many people have debated over, there's the image of falling away. Hebrews 6, 6, if we fall away, he talks about it. So don't drift away, don't turn away, don't fall away. It's about apostasy. And the remedy is powerful preaching specifically on the person of Christ. We're going to proclaim the infinite majesty of Jesus Christ. I I would take the whole book of Hebrews, 13 chapters, and break it into three kind of steps of what the book's about. A superior mediator brings us a superior covenant resulting in a superior life. That sums up, I think, the whole book. The superior mediator is Jesus. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Abraham and Levi and Aaron and all of the Old Testament. He's superior. And he brings us a superior covenant. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's it's founded on better promises. It's a better covenant. And it results in a better life. And what is that life? It's the life of faith described in Hebrews 11 and beyond. So, now this definition of faith is right at the beginning of that. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's more of a description. It's not a comprehensive definition of faith. Uh, a helpful insight on faith that I have I'd like to commend to you, as I'm, I'm saying you should preach for faith. What is faith? I want to commend to you the, the image that faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. Where do I get that? Well, look down in, in the text to Hebrews eleven twenty four through 27. There we have the case of Moses. You remember how Moses was leading the life of an Egyptian prince in the palace. And it says in, in Hebrews eleven twenty four 24 to 27, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, interesting words, the reproach of Christ. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Do you see that phrase? As seeing him who is invisible. How do you do that? By faith. So that's where I get the idea of faith as the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities. He endured, he persevered as seeing him who is invisible. So endurance, perseverance, despite the alluring temptations of Egypt, and then the reproach that comes from following Christ, the, the way that Satan allures us or hammers us, the way we persevere in all of that is by seeing him who is invisible. 
Now, this is the exact same thing the author is going to give at the end of the, of, the, of the faith chapter, the exhortation that comes out of that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He says, let us, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, he says, run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. How do you do that? How do you look to Jesus? Well, by faith. So faith is the eyesight of the soul. He's already used that expression earlier in Hebrews 2.9. He says, we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What does that mean? The crowning of Jesus with glory and honor. Well, he, he rose from the dead, ascended from the surface of the earth, moved through the heavenly realms, and is seated far above all heavenly realms at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. Five times the author of the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty of God. Five times. Hebrews 1.3, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 8.1, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But in Hebrews 2.9, he says, we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. How do you do that? Well, it's like you close your eyes and you look by faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. How do you do that? By the ministry of the word. I'm preaching for vision, for the heart vision of my people that they can see the glory of Jesus at the right hand of God. And it's not the same as Stephen and his martyrdom. God gave him a special thing. I don't think you want that. He was being stoned to death, but he said, look, I see heaven open and the, and, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was a special thing for Stephen. You're not Stephen. So it's not that. It's the inner eye of faith. Now, I think the Apostle Paul would agree with this idea of faith as the eyesight of the soul. He compared faith and sight. He said, he contrasted them. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So he's comparing things that can be compared. So the same thing that our eyes do in the physical world, our faith does in the spiritual world, the eyesight of the soul. Or he says, interestingly, in Ephesians 1, he prays for the Ephesian Christians, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Hope, riches, power. How do we get all that? the eyes of your heart being enlightened. What is that? It's faith, friends. It's faith. By faith you see these things. So that's what I mean. We need to preach for faith. You need to give your hearers a banquet of the word of God so that they can see the greatness of God in Christ. And I think that's what it's all. That's what, I really think that's what salvation is. That's what regeneration is. That's what the moment of regeneration, the miracle of the new birth, what is it? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is the best born-again verse in the Bible, the best description of what actually happens when you're born again. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So like the primordial world, 
when God spoke into nothingness and said, let there be light, and there was light, he does that by his spirit through the preaching of the gospel. He does that into our darkened hearts. He creates a light, and it's a special kind of light. It's the light of his own glory in the face of his only begotten son. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's what the author of Hebrews wants these tempted, suffering Christians to see. Do you not see his glory? And now if God's going to do that, if he's going to say, let there be light, he has to also say, let there be sight. There's no point in him saying, let there be light, if he's not going to create sight. And this is a spiritual light, so it needs spiritual sight. And what is it? It's faith. So what happens is he creates a light in our previously darkened hearts and then opens up the eyesight of the, of the heart, of the soul, which is faith. And then you see the glory of God in Christ crucified and resurrected, and you're justified. You're forgiven of all your sins. You're adopted as a child of God. That's it. That's the moment. But we're not done seeing, are we? How's your eyesight? Spiritually. I mean, do you have 20-20 How's your Is it really, really sharp? I want to commend to you the miracles of Jesus as literal historical things, but also parables of what he was doing spiritually. His healing, his physical healings are pictures of his spiritual healing. Do you remember the story of the man that he healed in stages in Mark chapter 8? Remember how he touched this guy and he said, what do you see? Spit on his eyes. Usually very insulting, but for Jesus, it's very healing. So he spit in the man's eyes, touched him, and then said, what do you see? He said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus touched him once more, and then his eyes were open. He could see everything clearly. That's a picture to me of the process of salvation. I don't see Jesus as clearly as I should. I don't see the future. I don't see heaven or hell as clearly as I should. We see through a glass darkly. We don't see really, really well. So even those that are born again in my midst, I want to give them sharper vision of invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And the faithful preaching of the glory of Christ and of the gospel renews that vision, restores that vision, strengthens that vision. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the author just does that. He just gives the infinite majesty of Christ. There's maybe no greater chapter for that than Hebrews 1. I've already said he's the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. Do you remember when I think it was, it was Philip who said, show us the Father, and then that's enough for us. He said, don't, don't you know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So it's not denial of Trinitarian truth. Jesus is not the Father, but the, the, the request, the desire was show us the Father. What's what he's here to do? He's here to show us the glory of God. Anyone who sees Christ is seeing the, the image of the invisible God. And so when you see him, the glory. And then, and then God the Father speaks of him in Hebrews 1. He says about the Son, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy, the infinite purity and holiness and beauty of Jesus. And then the Father speaks to the Son and tells him that he laid the foundations of the earth, an inter-Trinitarian conversation. The Father says to the Son, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, 
dear son, but you will last forever. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So when you're preaching the greatness of Christ, that is a positive inducement to not turn your back on Jesus through sin and wander off into wickedness. You see instead the greatness of the majesty of Christ and you don't want to hurt him through your wickedness and your sin. You want to, as the author said, lay aside every sin that hinders and, the, and, and so easily entangles our spiritual feet. And we're able, looking to Jesus, to run this race with endurance. And apostasy starts to drift away. And we start to get closer and closer to Christ. And we draw near to him, to the throne of grace, and receive mercy. And we find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what preaching is all about. Now, one final word, and I'll be done. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, one of the worst mistakes a preacher can ever make is to assume that everyone listening to him is a Christian. So I am committed every time I preach to preach the gospel. The simple message that God sent his son for sinners like you and me. I understand this is a highly filtered group. Is it even possible that an unregenerate person is listening to me? Yes, it's possible. And all you need to do for the forgiveness of your sins is to see in the words I've been preaching here the infinite glories of Christ and especially how he died for sinners like you and me, that our sins are put on him and he died under the wrath of God and that God raised him from the dead on the third day and that if you repent and believe, you'll have forgiveness of sins in his name. However, I don't only preach the gospel every week. That is milk. That's like the definition of milk, is God-man-Christ response, the basics that a non-Christian needs to hear. The people of God need to hear the full counsel of God. And so we, I, every time I preach in my church, I make certain that a lost person knows how his or her sins can be forgiven. But 90% of what I'm doing is feeding the flock, teaching them, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, to obey everything that he's commanded touching on marriage, parenting, money, relationship with the government, justice, all of these things as the text leads. But I also preach the gospel. And the, and the maturest saints still love the milk and drink it in and benefit from it. So dear friends, preach for the faith of your hearers. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had briefly in your word. I thank you for my mentors and the people that taught me, but I especially just want to thank you Lord Jesus, for dying for me and for your grace to me and to all my brothers and sisters here that you've saved us by simple grace and by faith. Lord, I pray that you would sustain the fire of grace in our hearts. Pour the oil of your grace on through the ministry of the word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.